I also have the chance this morning to read our scripture. And this morning, we're spending time again in the book of John. We're going to be reading John 17, verses 11 through 19. And starting in verse 11, it says this, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things that I speak in the word, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. It's always interesting, first kind of little drizzle of the year, everyone freaks out, and they're like, man, the storm that hit Alaska is going to hit us, we better stay home, batten the hatches, I don't know if I can go outside, might get a little water on the car, it's a little crazy, California weather, it can get nuts, right? Um, as we open the word, are you ready for the rain? Have you covered the stuff up you need covered? Are your seeds in the ground for your crops? Are you excited? Is your, is your grass doing okay? You know, people come over and they come over and they make two comments about my grass. Either, hey, is your dad just letting that go? Or, wow, your grass looks amazing. Because I've been fighting this crabgrass for two years and I cannot kill it. And so I tried and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to keep the rest of it okay and then we'll keep the efforts focused on the crabgrass, but it's just always there underneath the grass. You see it pop up and I'm like, I'm going to get you. And then it's this little unending string of crabgrass through my whole yard. It's just frustrating. So thanks for being a little counseling session for me. As the rain comes, it always reminds me of the surprise I get in my backyard though. Like what's going to pop up? Is it goat heads? Is it mustard? Is it just a bunch of little weeds I have to mow down? Like what's coming out that's, that's accidental and it's a surprise? But the question for us is, are we intentionally planning for growth? Are we allowing people to pour into us God's word? Are we allowing the water of God's word to fill us so that we will grow intentionally? Not just haphazardly and, oh, look, I learned that memory verse. And, hey, didn't I memorize that as a kid, John three sixteen? Oh, yeah, I want us. Thanks for that. But are we intentionally putting scripture on our mirrors, on our dashboards, and, and putting God's word in us? Are we reading scripture together? Are we praying with our family or our spouse? Are we allowing others to pour into us, as Paul tells the church in Corinth, look, I watered, this other guy planted, but it's all God who causes the growth. God causes the growth. And as we think today, in our third week, as we've been talking a lot about God, knowing God means to be saved. Knowing that God is the God who saves, frees us. And as we look now into the, the second part of Jesus's prayer for us, and Part of our mission statement is who we are as people who know God are saved by God and then people who grow. And as we grow, we're not just accidentally, oh my goodness, all of a sudden I kind of know things about God and I'm a nicer person. It's very intentional and a lot of times it hurts and it's awkward. 
And we see here Jesus is intentional about his prayer. He's intentional about his prayer saying, look, you need to understand that I'm God and I've done everything that's expected and I said I would do. I kept everyone, yeah, except the one for destruction. He was supposed to be destroyed. But everybody else, I got them all and I want them to be one as we're one. So he wants this oneness, which brings up the first question of two today is how do we relate to other believers? And then the second question is how do we relate to the world? But as we focus on the first question here, how do we relate to other believers? Jesus is saying that we need to be one as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one God and three persons with different purposes, different personalities, but one God and three persons. So we see this first point is that we learn in rows and grow in circles. Jesus came to establish circles and he showed up in different people's circles. Oftentimes they wanted to kill him. Oftentimes they were confused why he was there and brought some riffraff in with him. And people didn't like that Jesus was in their circle. And they didn't even like that he was teaching in rows sometimes. But we learn in rows. You guys are sitting in rows. You learn some things about God. And oftentimes, you know, CD did a great job last Sunday talking again about knowing God and having that personal relationship with him and not just being a, like a painting where you kind of see it, but really that experience with God that he's moving and making you in his image. And that's where we're going today. But when you think about it, Jesus came to establish a relationship with us vertically. And once that relationship's been made right vertically, that's going to impact your horizontal relationships. And everyone sees, touches, and feels the horizontal stuff, and it's always messy and awkward, and you want to fix it and grow in it and change it, but you can't until your relationship with God is made right vertically. And so he says, look, you got to learn that you're a sinner, and I'm your Savior. Believe in me, and then you'll be saved. And now, God, I want them to be one as we're one, and I want them to experience this. And the tension is, horizontally, we know God and are now part of his family. And as we know God, and he wants us to be one, and there's this beautiful picture of the church that grows in unity, and and that Jesus is the head of the church, and we're all part of the body functioning. So often it's it's a little awkward when the sun's a little too, too, too bright on one part or it's a little too wet and it's like, I don't really like it. I want to go and be isolated. And we, we want to be apart from the body. And he said, no, you have to keep them together because there's hardships, there's challenges, and they need to be taught. They need to be encouraged. They need to read scripture together. They need to pray together. And it's not just the job of the pastor. It's the church's job. So we need to all be one together. And that's why it's amazing. Jesus' prayer here is that that. What he did, what he accomplished, the Father would now take over and look over as he goes back up to heaven and sits down on the throne. So we see in Isaiah 6, 3, as we talked about knowing God, we read, Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of rains and early spring. I love this verse We mentioned it a few weeks ago because it talks so much about knowing the Lord without God in us. This was the time when God was with his people, speaking to the people through prophets, and and he's pushing in. He's saying, you guys got to know the Lord. Press in. You can know him. He will reveal himself to you. Let us press on to know the Lord. When you read biographies about George Mueller who was a man of faith, never asked for money, just prayed, and God provided all the funds to have this orphanage and, and care for the, the, those who were the orphans and widows, like Jesus' brother said, 
don't go to church and listen to sermons unless you're going to go love like Jesus, unless you're going to think like him and act like him. And George was like, all right, let's do it. How's, how's your, have any of you started an orphanage? What are you guys doing? You guys even praying? Have you guys started uh, missions to bring clean water? Are you guys taking care of your neighbor? Are you guys doing, like, you think about Moses, he's just watching sheep, and all of a sudden God's like, all right, enough sheep watching, go get my nation out of slavery. Talk about the great escape, right? Like Steve McQueen jumping barbed wire on a motorcycle, that's pretty cool. Then he gets shot up, you're like, that was a lame ending. What about in Exodus when they get, actually get the great escape and they make it through the waters and God did that? Any of you do something like that? Like, any, like I mean, that's scale one to 10. That's like a 15. How about a two? Anyone do anything on a two scale this week? Like, I feel lame. I'm like, I'm supposed, what? Grow. Like, how do I express this? How do I get us excited to grow? Because you read these stories and you're like, yeah, that's pretty awesome. Like, a juvenile delinquent gets arrested, ends up having these massive orphanage and this massive impact for the kingdom, what am I doing? When we read biographies like that, it's like, man, that deeper life, that growth that takes place. I know I've thought often that maybe God just doesn't intend for me to know him or, or get a special double portion of his spirit. Like Elisha's like, Elijah, you did all these great things. I want a double portion. Elijah's like, all right, cool. If you see me, peace out, then you get it. And sure enough, a chariot of fire swoops down from heaven, takes Elijah up. Elisha grabs the cloaks and like a double portion of his spirit. And you read that story and you're like, whoa, I want to do some cool things like that for God. Maybe you've thought, why does God give his presence to some and let multitudes of others struggle in this half light or this imperfect experience as they follow God? It's a great question. It's an important question we should ask. And it brings us back to the fact that God never changes. And God will expose himself and give all of himself to all of his kids. He doesn't have any favorites in his household. All he's ever done for any of his kids, he will do the same for any other of his kids. And you think about it. My professor explained it to me, but I'm not smart enough to fully get it. And some of you might be like, yeah, I'm a little lost here, this whole growth thing. But if, if you take a, a big gulp from Circle K uh, and you fill it up, and that's, that's what Moses got, the blessing, the calling, the portion, and then, and then you get your 12-ounce your latte from Starbucks. If it's full, you're stoked. You're like, I got a 12-ounce latte. It's full. This is what I was called to get. But someone else might love their Dr. Pepper and they need like 48 ounces or however many ounces that big gulp sucker has in there. And that's what Moses gets. And you're not going, man, I didn't get this portion, this blessing. You were called to do something and you're supposed to do it. But in our minds, because especially in our Western culture, we have this hierarchy. Instead, Jesus is saying, no, just be one. Just be one. Is, is it enough that you can be one in the body? Is it enough that you could be part of the body? And, and I think part of it too is, the pressure and the position you put on a pastor to, to like elevate you or, or command you or recruit you or manipulate you into service. And if you do this and you'll get this from God and I'll kind of make sure I put in a good word for you, just show up and set up or show up and tear down or you got to lead the youth. And it's like, dude, the pastor hasn't called me. Should I even be here? Well, you should be talking to Jesus. He's the head pastor. I'm just the mouth that gets to point you to him and equip you and pray for you and look to him and with the elders lead, but we're the body. And so that's why Jesus says, stop, stop getting out 
God, you got to help keep the body one because we all have people who have needs and we have people who have gifts that can meet those needs. So we're to be one. So we need to conclude there's, the difference is not with God, but it's with us in limiting or, or looking as, as Paul talks about when he talks about the body, when you're like, well, I'm not a foot or I, I want to be a mouth and, and, and you're a foot. It's like, no, just own your role in the body. And it actually starts before you identify your spiritual gift. It starts with reading this. It starts with reading the words of God. It starts with praying for one another, serving one another, staying connected as the bride, as one body. So often you read scripture or you go to a sermon and, and I mean, hopefully at least one out of three weeks, you're probably walking out of here a little hurt, a little offended and that's called the Holy Spirit's convicting you of sin. You're like, man, I thought I was good. And then I heard that and I read scripture and it wasn't Brandon's idea. It was, out, it was here, straight out of God's word. And he's saying, you need to think more like me. That part of your life you've been trying to hide in some little cupboard somewhere above your fridge that it's like this random no place for small little hide. You tuck some stuff in there. I'm the king of finding those little drawers and stuff. And Jenna's the queen of finding that. Why is this here? Ah, it was in a hurry. I just threw it in there. And God's like, yeah, it's time to get rid of that. And you're like, really, today? Ah, oh, I thought I could kind of hide that. That's what we're talking about, growth. But not accidentally when, when your wife finds your little hiding you know, compartment for all your screws, you're in the middle of a job and you just empty your pockets before they go in the washer because that was a bad experience, right? And God's like, what are you doing? You got all this junk carrying around in your pockets. It's ruining the washing machine. I'm trying to cleanse you. I have a purpose for you. Are you going to be a part of building my kingdom? Or you have all these little things going on. You're too busy. This holiness, godliness, all of the New Testament, we're going to talk about more next week in specifics. But Peter's like, you guys, you got to be focused on being holy and godly in all of your life. And that process is called sanctification. Thankfully, it's not up to us. Thankfully, it's God's work in and through us. Again, the problem's not him, it's us. We have to let him do accomplish that. First Corinthians 1, we see Paul call the worst church. It's literally if the city of Las Vegas, LA, and San Francisco combined were a church. And Paul's like, you guys are the saints. You guys are awesome. Like, what? They're not following God. There's no godliness. Like, no one's going to that town being like, I can't wait to go there because it's so full of holy people that love God. Like, that's not what they're known for. In the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, you see it's like correction after instruction after correction. And he says, you're saints, sanctified by Christ. It's God's work. It's God's calling. And in Colossians 3, Paul talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, he's saying, look, if you're sleeping with people that aren't your wives, or your husbands, if you're looking at pornography, if you're a liar, if you're drunk, if you're a homosexual, you're just feeding the flesh constantly, sinning. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You can't think you just show up to church and all of a sudden you're good. You can't go to a dealership and think you're going to turn into a car. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You have to believe. You have to know God, which is eternal life. And then the growth that he accomplishes in you proves it, that you'd be one. There's a battle for our soul. And over and over, all through the New Testament, Paul, John, Peter, they're like, we saw Jesus, we're telling you, it's not our ideas. The Holy Spirit told us to tell you this, plus we saw God. We're trying to help you focus on him and be on mission in this world. 
and there's a battle. When Satan came to Jesus and said, hey, I got kingdoms, which one do you want? Oh, actually, I'll give you all of them. Jesus didn't say, dude, that's a bad joke, Satan. I'm God, you can't give me kingdoms. Jesus quoted scripture. Jesus continually had his mind renewed by God's word, by his word. And he said, no. That's not my purpose. It was Satan's to give. He's the king of this world. If you're saved and filling your heart with scripture, and you're trusting in Christ, then what I'm about to share with you is not going to scare you. You're already probably aware to some degree, but you should hopefully be more aware and not afraid. Others of you who are not trusting in Christ, and you look to the world for your hope, you're probably going to be frightened, and that's probably why you're here, because you're not hearing the truth about what's happening or what's to come. When you see the five red heifers, as it were reported, was reported that flew from Texas to Israel because they're supposedly the purest ones to restart the temple sacrifices. As believers, we're like, it's about time. Like, we knew this was coming and this is getting worse, so uh, let's get this going. And some people are like, why are they funding the temple? And the, it's like, hey, it's going to happen. You can't stop what God said was going to happen. There'd be a new temple for the Antichrist to sit in and blaspheme God. So there's going to be a third temple and there's already plans, they've already been for the past couple years training and raising up the priests and getting everything in order so when they had the heifers, they could restart Leviticus temple sacrifices. And they're pumped. They're like, man, I can't wait to bring sacrifices to the altar. It's going to be great. Within six to nine months, they're saying once they get the funds and okay, they're going to break ground on the third temple and get it finished. They're putting in a light rail from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to get 70 nations there the Pope is presiding over the Abrahamic one world religion center where a mosque, Catholic and Jewish, will all be there in one place in the UAE. The New World Order is here. The Vatican's calling all of their money back, all of their schools and churches. They want all the money by the end of the month. Pope's ordering all the money back. Biden signed a digital currency executive order to go through by the end of the year. The German government officials claiming September 25th, along with Walmart and other big, just continual narrative of catastrophe, have 10 to 30 days of food and money and gas on hand because we're switching stuff over. The market's crashing, the world's flooding, Iran's underwater, no one's talking about all these nations that are just getting hammered. Inflation's not slowing down. Argentina, I read, hit 100% inflation. I'm not a mathematician, but I don't understand how that's feasible. And the world is falling apart, but we have the playbook. We knew it would. Like Jesus said, hey, I'm out, I'm out and, and uh, I'm coming back. John 14, all of that, if you read John 14 and you understand this piece, all of the disciples were from Galilee. They were, they were fishermen. And in that small region, in that small town, they had a wedding ceremony where the bride would wait for the groom. And the groom didn't know the day or the hour, only the father did. Sound familiar? So when Jesus was talking to them, hey, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to God but through me, and I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you. They're like, yeah, like the groom would. Yeah, I'm the groom. You're the bride. Don't worry. Don't panic. It's coming. I'm coming back for you. The world's going to fall apart. Be ready. And all through First and Second Thessalonians, Paul's like, guys, stop freaking out. 
Your grandma that died, don't worry. She's gonna beat you to heaven and then you're gonna go meet her in heaven. It's gonna be fine. Like you'll see her again in heaven. She's a believer, you're a believer. She's not gonna miss the rapture. The rapture's coming before it gets crazy. The post-trib view, it's just not as hopeful and clear biblically that Jesus would say, you're the bride, you're the church and I'm gonna let you get destroyed during the tribulation. Because as believers in the church age, we know we're called to live for Christ And that's our challenge as we see the world falling apart and how do we live in a world where there's transgender bathrooms at work and there's people that have different ideologies and unless I fully support their worship and their ideology, then I'm hating them and how do I bring truth and love? And that's what we're called to bring the gospel into that world. The tribulation saints that turn to Christ are gonna be called to live for a brief moment, but they're called to die for Christ because when you proclaim Christ, you're not a part of their financial, economic, medical, you can't partake in their system. It's clear all through Revelation that you're done. And so we as believers jump up for joy when we're like, hey, our aim and our focus and our time is now to bring the gospel of hope to the hopeless world where everything they're looking for is falling away. We can replace it with Jesus and say, yeah, it's been Jesus the whole time. It's all of Jesus for all of the world. And if you're sitting here going, man, this is kind of freaking me out. I didn't know all that stuff. And yeah, that makes sense that we're actually on the edge of Jesus' return. I should probably trust in Jesus. Maybe you're like, this is all the hell I can handle. This world is crazy. I need to trust in Jesus. Do it now. He said, I'm coming like a thief in the night. The most amazing thing we see Christians continually saying, well, it's been said to be close for thousands of years. I never forget my... My wife's grandma, every time we saw her, she's like, hey, guys, just come. I think he's coming. Like, she was dead serious. She's like, wait, hold on. I think he's coming. Like, are you guys ready? We're ready. Okay, let's go. Oh, man. Like, interrupt dead conversation. Like, that's her attitude was, like, so committed. Like, he's coming. I was like, hey, I appreciate. You're ready. Bags are packed. Boarding pass is secure. Like, that's good. There's no third temple. There's some monetary stuff. There's some stuff that, you know, back in 2006, George W. Bush said we're all going to be microchipped by 2008. Like, this stuff isn't new, but I'm like, ah, it's kind of needs to work itself out a little more, I think, and unfortunately, but she really is going to beat us because she's already with the Lord waiting, so she's going to be resurrected first before we go, but if we make it to the rapture. But here's the reality. People have said that, right? Well, Peter's like, hey, that's the same thing they were saying in the early church, and Peter said, don't listen to them. Scoffers are going to come, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked the fact the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Creation account. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, Noah's flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So all of your home renovation, home improvement projects, it's all going to burn. But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So if a thousand years is in one day and a day is like a thousand years, it's all in God's timing. That's why Jesus is like, guys, you can't figure this out. You don't know when God's going to tell Satan to stop and when he's going to give him the green light to go and usher in 
all that we're seeing take hold, but we knew the end would come swiftly and it would not be good. In verse 9, we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All those guys that write books and do charts on YouTube and every year they have to update because they have a new prophetic date that the world's going to end. I, I'm like, dude, I don't know. I'm glad I'm not a mathematician because all I know is Jesus is coming back and there's a bunch of people that need to know him today that might not get the chance tomorrow. So we have a lot of work to do as the church. And it's not going to be helpful if we're all scattered and it's going to be messy if we're all apart. And that's why Jesus says, God, you got to keep them one. Because in order for them to grow, they got to be one. And they got to use each other's gifts to care for each other, pray for each other, support each other. And this world's going to be crazy. And, and as we see, the problem is we learn in rows and grow in circles, but our lives are so busy. Once we learn in rows, we just scatter, and then we get beat up and hurt, and there's challenges. And, and every week, it's like, oh, pastor, this is going on. Hey, can we pray for this? Hey, can we... And it's always encouraging when it's like, dude, the world's going to end. Jesus is coming. It's like, yeah, I know. We focus on that. He's coming for us. Preach the gospel. The world hates us. Hopefully, as Paul says, don't be a jerk, speed, and rob people and have the world hate you for breaking rules, but have them hate you because you're known by your love for them. So the two things that keep us from being sanctified, keep us from thinking, acting, and loving like Christ, and being one as the bride of Christ, is if we blame people. And the temptation is isolation, especially for introverts. You don't really like people anyway, so you're like, sweet, I'm out. You bunch of sinners, heathens, I'm not talking to you guys. I'm just going to read my Bible, be a little hermit. The, there was a time in, in Egypt where they did that in the early church. They just bounced. They just headed off to the desert in Egypt and, and had this isolated little camp of quote-unquote believers. But here, Jesus is not saying for us to be isolated. People claim to know God, but live like the world, and then they hurt and divide the church. And it's like, man, there's a bunch of people in there living in sin, unless the elders and, and pastor leaders are calling it out, confronting it, and then saying, okay, we're dealing with this, then people are divided and scatter. People have needs, and you have needs. Well, who gets their needs met? Because in Romans 12, Paul says you're supposed to outdo one another with brotherly love, which for me, I'm like, all right, challenge accepted. I'm a competitor. I'm like, let's go. So if you're supposed to put my needs first, that's awesome. But then how am I supposed to respond if I'm supposed to put your needs first? Who wins? It's supposed to outdo each other with brotherly love. And in, in our house, my kids are old enough now, they realize, they, they understand the game. They're like, mom always wins. Like, her needs always get per first. How does this work, dad? Like, why, do, why does she always get to win? It's like, well, that's what comes with being a mom. I didn't, I didn't realize that until I got married. But once you're your wife and mom, you just automatically get a little special card there. And, and that's why in, in Scripture, it's like, hey, wives, like, you're always probably going to win. Most, maybe once or twice. You're not sinless, so you do have to fail once or twice a year. But then... You're supposed to love your husband. You have to like submit to him because he needs like he needs it. You know that's where you get that check because it's like, hey, you're supposed to outdo each other with brotherly love, and that's what the church is supposed to look like: being one, being together, tolerating, bearing each other's burdens, which is hard. You're like, man, I got my own stuff I have to carry in my house. How am I supposed to bear the church's burdens? 
You mean I'm supposed to come under and, and walk with people and make sure they're not getting sucked out and tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, and, and, and guard our minds thinking only true theology, and we're supposed to get into that mess, and we're supposed to be built up, and, and, and only when we're one in the church, Paul's reflecting on Jesus' prayer here saying, we have to be one using our gifts to build up into perfect unity, the church. And Jesus prayed for our relationship with each other as Christians. Secondly, Jesus prayed we would be constantly kept aware of our growing intentionally in our intellect, thinking of God, and especially his fatherhood for us. It's interesting in Luke 15, verse 7, when he's, he's talking about the joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. When we think about it, the angels are around God and they're singing holy, holy, holy all the time. So the joy in heaven isn't the angels being joyful and, and singing. They're already singing and praising God. So it's God the Father who has the joy that a man or a woman, a, a son or a daughter has come home. And we would keep growing in that oneness and we would keep praying and pursuing and taking opportunities as God opens that we'd share the gospel and God would have the joy and say, yes, praise me. I said another one came home. I got another one home before Jesus goes and gets the church. That's how we're to relate as fellow Christians. We're supposed to have that joy and celebrate and know that God is rejoicing when a son or daughter comes home. And that's the time we have left. It's not our kingdom. Because as Peter says, look, guys, you're supposed to be focused in verse 11 on holiness and godliness because this whole world is bent for destruction. Heaven's gonna burn, earth's gonna burn. We can't wait for the new heaven and new earth, which is helpful for those of you that are tracking with me going, Man, what? God's going to destroy heaven? I thought there were streets of gold. Yeah, he has fire hot enough to melt it and refine it and redo it. New heaven, new earth, which is amazing because I'm not much of a singer. So in my mind, thinking about floating around singing in heaven, it's like, man, I hope I get a new voice at least out of the deal. But being on new earth with perfect waves that never close out to surf, perfect water temperature, never having sharks to worry about eating you. Like there's some good things personally I'm looking forward to in heaven and the new earth in particular. But relationally, horizontally, no more wars, no more sickness, no more division, no more pain of families being torn apart through divorce and selfishness. I've given them your word, Jesus says, and, and the world has hated them. So we have some encouragement from Jesus. The world's gonna hate us as it hated him. And if we hold on to his word, then the world's going to hate us. So a lot of churches have let go of God's word and grabbed the culture and the world so that they cannot be hated for a short time, but they're running into an eternal punishment. And Jesus says, for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. Jesus' followers would have trouble in the world just as Jesus did. In fact, the more that we're like Jesus, thinking like Jesus, acting like Jesus, and loving like Jesus— the more trouble we're going to have. Think about it. If you have a spouse or, or a son or daughter who doesn't know Jesus and you're loving them like Jesus, it gets under their skin because they can't do what you do. They don't have the desires you have. They don't have the thoughts you have and they're blinded and you, it breaks your heart because you're like, man, I'm praying for them, I'm trying to serve them and it's not, and that's where it always comes back to. It's not us. We water, we plant the seeds but we have to trust God to cause the growth. 
And that's, again, why the church has to be unified so we can pray for one another, bearing with one another, knowing, man, that's, they go home to a spouse. They go home to kids. They're going into the holidays where it's going to be another tough season where they want to bring the hope of the gospel. And the question is, where do we go? What do we do when we're hurt? Do we go to the church or do we isolate? Do we run away from the world and say, no, nope, I'm not going to be hurt by you anymore. I'm just going to live my own life. I'm going to do whatever I want. Sanctification is thinking, acting, and loving like Christ. Living like Christ. The second thing that keeps us from being sanctified is blaming the world. And saying the world is too good, the world has too much to offer, I'm just so busy to let God grow me. Uh, maybe sometime, or maybe if he can like sneak in a minute here, or I'll listen to the Bible on the way to, to church once every once in a while. Are we assimilating? Do we look so much like the world? In verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The battle. He's like, hey, the world's ruled by Satan. Protect them while they're there. Leave them in though. And we are like, well, Jesus was supposed to rapture us already, but I guess he didn't. So we're just going to isolate. We're going to rapture ourselves out. And it, or we just give up and we go, you know what? Whatever, like I'm saved, I'll just live however the world lives. And, and the evil one gets in and deceives and distorts and sucks you away and you're not one as Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit are one. We're not one as the bride of Christ. So Jesus is praying that we would be sanctified, we'd be set apart for his purpose, think, act, and love like him and be protected from the evil one who's gonna try and deceive us. First, the Christian attitude toward the world should not be one of isolation, Christ does not ask that we be taken away. That's his job to take away at the end. Withdrawal has always been a temptation for the religious. And in Jesus' time, Pharisees, they gave in to that temptation. The third century Christian hermits fled to the deserts of Egypt, like I said. Because they, they were seeing people get sucked in and assimilate like the first and second Corinthian letters to the Corinthian church. They just assimilated right into the culture. And there was very little difference. And, and Paul was like, dude, you're a saint. You've been sanctified. Let Jesus have his full work in you. We must not become, as, as John Stott put it, a rabbit hole Christian. Maybe you haven't seen rabbit holes, so maybe ground squirrel. You see the ground squirrels in the vineyards and the ranches, and they just live in the ground. They just pop out and see you, and they're like, ah, and they run away. And then you get your 22 out and plunk them off, right? It's like over. And you're like, I'm going to die. And they just run away and they're, and they're just isolated. They're running into their holes. And you see it on college campuses. You go from Bible study to Bible study, earbuds in your ears, only Christian sermons getting pumped in, and there's no relationship with the world. I was asked by my son to talk to the principal at his school to make the kids in his school stopped cussing. And I said, perfect opportunity. This is the rest of your life. The world is going to be more against you from here on out. It's over. Innocence has now been lost. Like you're aware that the world is against God and out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. So now you know what's in your friend's hearts. You, you were kind of left to worry before, but now you know. And he's like, yeah, they don't, you're not intellectually smart. It's not a way to articulate. Yeah. You're repeating what I said. Good. At least you're listening, or were. I don't know how much you're going to listen anymore, right? But that's our approach. Man, I wish they would do this. I wish they would stop this. Why? They don't worship your God. They worship themselves. 
they worship another God. And until they stop worshiping that God or stop worshiping themselves, they're not going to change. There's no reason to. And we're in the world. We're in the world. We're not separate in proximity. We're not supposed to go buy a bunch of land and have this little hermitage out somewhere and be Christians. Jesus said, no, God, keep, keep them there. But we're different. We're separate in purpose. We're not building our own kingdom. So we need to live close enough that we're seen so that they can see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. That's what Jesus said. Let the world see your good works. Live thinking like me, acting like me, loving like me. Let my spirit push out the sin out of you so that my holiness and godliness consumes you. And the closer we are to Christ, the closer we are to one another as believers. And that's where sometimes pruning happens and God's like, all right, we're going to shrink it up. Here's the believers that are committed to me. And then we're going to go forward with the mission of the gospel to bring all of Jesus to all of the world. The closer we are to Christ, the closer we are to one another. Thinking like Christ. Are we spending time reading God's word and meditating on his truth? Are you guys around the table with family or friends constantly with the Bible open, reading it? I don't always need to be there to explain it. Trust me. The Holy Spirit is the, the convictor of sin, and he's going to teach you what the Word says. And it's not easy. The end, the part I didn't read to you was Peter telling the church, keep reading. Read Paul's letters. I don't understand them. Peter says that. He admits it's hard to understand Paul. It's hard to understand the Bible. It's tough. But you got to read it and pray together, and serve one another, outdo one another with brotherly love. How's that working in your house? Any of the kids in here? Are you outdoing your parents in brotherly love, or are they outdoing you? Who's driven you more places? Who's put more food on your table? Who's put more clothes on your back? Maybe it's time to maybe take the trash out before you're asked, or pick up the poop before you're asked, or clean up a dish before they, they even come home after school, and it's like, wow, outdo one another with that love and affection like Christ loved you. The method of missions is sanctification. Jesus didn't come and say, okay, you guys need to start Bible studies. You need to start orphanages. He said, God, make them one as we're one. Keep them. Let the word sanctify them. Let the word sanctify and grow them. In verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. That we would think, act, and love in truth. In verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. We have to be sanctified. We have to be godly and holy for our word to carry any weight. And that's where we have to love like Christ. And that's the mission. And so we're going to spend next week talking more about how we grow and the things that keep us from being holy. But here we see the purpose is sanctification, thinking, acting, loving like Christ. And it's through the Word. Scriptures guard us from isolation or assimilation, and they gear us up for missions. In verse 19, we see that Jesus voluntarily set himself apart for service for our service, to make us like him, think like him, love like him, and it's in your work with coworkers who worship a different God and worship themselves. How do you introduce Jesus? Because there's not much time left. We need to be proactive about loving and asking, hey, have you ever thought about worshiping Jesus instead of yourself? 
Hey, have you thought about worshiping Jesus instead of your other God? Well, I don't worship a God. Well, let's talk about your money and your vacations and your experiences, and let's talk about what you're angry at. Let's talk about what you're excited with. Let's talk about those things. It doesn't have to be taking the Bible and throwing it at them and saying, okay, in Ezekiel it says this, and Daniel it says this, and did you know the third temple's coming? Let's talk about this headline or that, or do you know that this was passed? Or... No, it's all of Jesus for all the world. And as Jesus left heaven to come to earth and took the form of a human being tempted in every way that we were and was sinless to restore us vertically with God, then how do we relate with other believers? As we learn in rows and grow in circles, is it a life group? Is it Bible study? Is it one-on-one discipleship? Next week we'll, we'll talk more specifically about how to get involved and how to grow. But one of the interesting things in our, in our history as God was growing me and, and this desire to, to really go, yeah, we're, we're not to feed all the hungry people. That's not the church's job. It's not to clothe. If someone's hungry, we'll feed them. If someone is naked, we'll clothe them, sure. But, but the church's primarily job is to care for the souls. And when we care for the souls, we call out government. We call out different people that are doing things against God's people and misusing their role as government. That's a unique job of the church. But it's interesting when the church loses its focus and we start getting sucked into our own personal preferences and, and things that we think, oh, this is, our, this is what we're all about. It's like, yeah, we, we're there. But Jesus said the homeless will always be with us. So it's great job security. We're always needing to care for someone and love someone and provide. But the reality is it's a spiritual soul need. And Jesus was always doing both. And it wasn't always soul work before physical. Sometimes he would... He would say, hey, rise and walk. And it's like, dude, what? Or it was, hey, your sins are forgiven. Well, yeah, he came for his legs, not his soul, but that's cool, he got his sins forgiven, but now rise and walk and you're good. Christian and Missionary Alliance is a group of churches we're, we're associated with, and their, their bottom line is all of Christ for all the world. It started with a, a guy, A.B. Simpson was his name, and most don't know it intentionally. We don't talk about him a lot because we're all about Jesus. And uh, he was a pastor. His mom prayed for him to be in ministry uh, since he was a young kid. And he was um, climbing that ladder, bigger church after bigger church, bigger ministry, more successful, until they got to New York in a Presbyterian church. And all these immigrants, Irish immigrants, came over, and he went down to the docks to share the gospel with them. And I was like, yeah, that's my kind of guy. And they came to church with him after they trusted Jesus. And could you believe it? The nerve these immigrants had. They sat in the seats that were paid for by these members of this Presbyterian church. And that was just, you couldn't do that. That was like the 11th commandment. Thou shall not sit in paid for seats. Because back in the day, you had to buy your seats in church because that was how the church made money and something I think the Catholics kind of instituted to make sure their money was coming in. And, and so, so the elders pulled the pastor aside and said, hey, you can't do this. What you do on the weekends is up to you, but Sunday morning we're paying you to preach to us in the pews we paid for. So he left the church and he started preaching the gospel to anyone and everywhere and all these buddies from all these different denominations said, hey, we're over this denomination weird divide thing. We're all about Jesus. He's like, yeah, me too. Let's bring the gospel to the world. And I'm like, yeah, no one's really doing that. And so fast forward, they focused on Jesus being our savior. We've been focusing on that last two weeks. Today we're focusing on him sanctifying us. The second part they look at Jesus and then the healer and the coming king. We looked at that truth that he is, 
healing us through that sanctification process, restoring what was broken and lost from sin and shame. And he's coming back to bring us fully into that perfect state. And now over 500,000 worshipers globally, speaking 37 languages and 2,000 churches, there's 700 U.S. alliance workers that serve in 70 nations. But the biggest thing, that's cool in numbers, whatever, but every number has a name and every name has a story and every story matters to God. But the most amazing thing is in, in Vietnam, there's 1,400,000 believers there that weren't there pre-World War. But when the missionaries were there and the word came and World War's breaking out, it's coming, you got to get out of here, go home to America where it's safe and we got the heater on and the, the heated seats and the microwaves and your lattes, it's all ready for you, come back. They said, no, we're staying here. And they died. And then everyone in Vietnam was like, they preached about Jesus who came from heaven to earth and they came from the U.S. to our village. And they preached that Jesus died to take away their sins in service of all the world that they'd believe in Jesus and be saved. And they came and they believed that so much they laid their lives down for us that we would know that message, that we would know that God. That's amazing. So who are we passing this off to? It's bigger than just our family. It's your grandkids. It's your great-grandkids. If the Lord would tarry and wait to get more people to believe, that's awesome. But he also could come right now. So we live in that tension. And we go, okay, the mission is dangerous. We're not to be isolated and try and make it as safe and cozy. And we're not to be assimilated and just look like the world, talk like the world, and think like the world. We're supposed to be set apart and that holiness and godliness. So when Jesus comes, we're ready. Jesus in Hebrews 7 was set apart from sinners. He was without sin. But in Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, he was called a friend of sinners. He was close enough. They could touch him. They could see him. They could gain access to him. Christ prayed that his followers would have an attitude, not of isolation or assimilation, but of mission. And as our mission, who we are, is the same as what Jesus prayed for us, to know him, which is salvation, grow in that relationship with God and others, and then go and share the gospel. For some of us, because of scheduling our lives so full, so busy, all the different places we gotta go, it's gonna take purpose. We gotta be ready to live a purpose-filled life, intentional and passionately pursuing growth. It's not just gonna haphazardly happen God causes the growth, but are we allowing him to grow us? With the Savior's help, with the Holy Spirit in us, God will make us think, act, and love like Jesus. So as we close, are you, Jesus said, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world, that they'd be holy, godly, sanctified. How well do we relate as Christians? We're not supposed to go start missions and movements. Maybe one of you is, but we're supposed to be responsible with the families we're called to have and steward and serve in. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them. How well are you, do you relate to Christians? Are you learning in rows? Are you growing in circles? Are you growing in your knowledge of the Father so that there's a growing unity among your brothers and sisters in Christ? And are you growing in that joy? And how well do we relate to the world? Is it isolation or is it assimilation? Hopefully we've refocused and we're on mission again to bring the gospel to all of Jesus, to all of the world. So we think about this big word sanctification, meaning thinking, acting, and loving like Jesus. Here's a good 
little dashboard that we've put in front of you in the past. We're going to talk more about it next week. But every time I throw this in front, especially for guys, you don't even have to say anything. They're just like, yep, I'm here. And, it, and it, at first, people were like, oh, it's going to be offensive. I don't know if people are going to hear it, see it. It's like, dude, the Holy Spirit totally pushes the believer. And the unbeliever, too. You're like, yep, I don't believe in God. I worship me or I worship another God. But once you're born again, once you trust in Jesus, it's like, okay. And most often, the humble, the broken say they're an infant, when really they're a child because they know enough that they are humble enough to go, I don't know what I don't know, but they need help. And they're still self-focused. And there's a transition that goes from just, hey, feed me, it's all about me, to child, where there's still some self-talk, self-focus, but it's amazing to see that big swing and step and growth from child to young adult where you start to think about others' needs. And it's frail and you're humble and you're awkward, but we want to pray alongside you, equip you, and, and pray for you that God will continue to grow you into full maturity, as, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, that we as a body need to grow up into perfect men and women of Christ, only as we're one, as Jesus the Father and the Spirit are one. And so the closer we are to Christ, the closer we are to one another. It's always been this oneness thing, and it's a beautiful picture that otherwise is a little messy. And only without the only hope we have is Jesus. And without Jesus, there is no oneness. There is no growth that God can cause. But it takes the body working together. So the closer we are to Christ, the closer we are to one another. And as we spend some time now for believers to reflect on what Jesus might be working on you and the Holy Spirit saying, hey, your mind has been way too distracted. There's way too much of the world that you've allowed to assimilate in your life. Let's work on that mind. Are you in the scriptures? Are you praying? Maybe it's your heart, your desires. You're, you're loving the world too much. And maybe it's, it's your actions. They don't show Christ. When they're around you, they're not hearing Jesus. And I'm not saying to be oversaved, where I feel like I'm oversaved sometimes. I'm like, man, I talked to this guy like twice and I didn't mention Jesus' name. Like, is he even, sorry, I lost a soul for you, Lord. I'm a failure. Like, don't be oversaved and like every single word has to be Jesus all the time. But there is that prayer of like, okay, was I supposed to bring your name up in that crowd of unbelievers? Ah, there was an opportunity. Okay, next time I'm not going to miss it. I'm ready. But when they hang out around you or your family long enough, do they hear Jesus? Do they see Jesus? Do they feel his love through you? Let's spend some time to reflect and pray and let the Spirit and let the head of the church talk to you and then I'll come up and close this.